Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast brought to you by Martel Cognac. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon at Mark's Club by Anton Chikhanov, the 29-year-old founder of Wheelie, the luxury ride-hailing app. Anton is your typical tech founder prodigy and built the first version of this company at just 23 years old. Since then, it's grown into a thriving business with more than 250 employees and next year it plans to expand from London and Moscow into Paris and beyond. In today's episode, Anton tells us why it's okay to spend two years building the wrong product, how it feels to be the underdog every single day, and why he never learned to drive himself. Anton, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thanks for having me over. You're 29 years old, so you're probably one of the youngest founders I think we've ever had on the podcast but you started it at 21 which is even more remarkable what was it like starting such an ambitious company at such a relatively young age so i um i was living back in zurich where i grew up for like 20 years and i guess straight out of university i managed to fail my driving exam twice <laughs> right and i think if you want to give it a third try you have to go and see some psychologist or somewhere so that they say, okay, you can you can try a third time. Otherwise, you, you can't do it anymore. And so I was using like a combination of uh, public transport. And since public transport is not a perfect substitute for a car, yeah. I was also using taxis. And I had one story where uh, I got in a taxi and I was like super tired. And I was explaining to the driver where we need to go. He didn't know the exact address or whatever. And because I was tired, I was yawning and a bit. And he thought I was being disrespectful to him. (laughs) So so he threw me out of the car. And I mean, this is um, interesting because um, the quality of the service you get, it really depends on the individual driver. And there was no... There's no control per se, especially when you get in a vehicle from the street. Yeah. So, um, of course, I did not come up immediately with the business model uh, that we have now, which is luxury ride hailing. My initial idea, and because I have some engineering background, was to build something like booking.com for taxis and minicabs. So my idea was, okay, I'm gonna meet a few taxi companies in Europe. So I flew to Amsterdam, I flew to, I, I spoke to some guys in Zurich, I flew to London where I found, and was very surprised that in addition to black cabs, you have all this minicab and private hire industry. My top Londoners would take black cabs all the time. Mm. And, um, so my idea it was, okay, I'm going to sign those fleets up. I'm going to integrate into their dispatching system. And without having any operational experience, I could build an app that would have uh, access to a supply of like thousands of yeah. uh, drivers and cars all over Europe. Of course. So and that's the, how we started. Yeah. These companies had been running that industry the same way for decades, really. And you were 21-year-old who's coming to them and saying there's a way we could do it differently. Did they take you seriously or did you have trouble getting those meetings? Well, there were some challenges. And I think one of the main challenges was that, well, those guys, they used to 
they didn't own the software. So they bought the software from, from some software provider. And it was like really difficult to get a meeting with software providers because they would say, okay, what, what, why do we need you at all? Yeah. Right? Um, it was difficult. It was difficult to explain because, I mean, this was like super niche back then. I mean, you had an intersection of people who on one side have iPhones mm. and on the other side use taxis. Now it seems like straightforward, but back then this looked like a very small niche. So yeah, it was difficult. Yeah. Were you very entrepreneurial as a child? Were you growing up always kind of coming up with solutions and ideas? I wouldn't call it entrepreneurial. Um, I taught myself how to code and was trying to build stuff, yeah. if you can call it that way. And before starting this company, I tried to build something like a virtual currency exchange, but okay. that was before Bitcoin. And my goal was to do it like for virtual currencies that were like in games. Okay. But yeah, I dropped the project. Right. <laughs> Not dropped the project, but there were some challenges around yeah. Uh, regulation. Yeah. And you're, of course, quite an international person because you grew up in Russia, but you uh, went to school in Switzerland. I didn't grow up in Russia. Ah, I was okay. only born, you were in, born Russia, in Russia. You yeah. and I grew up in Switzerland from like zero or one year old until yeah. 20. And do you think that international outlook helped you when you were thinking about reaching out to different cities and starting new ideas? Well, the, the point is when you grew up like that and you speak a few languages and you have seen quite a few cities and you lived in different kind of cities, it's uh, you take that for granted. Yeah. You take that for granted because you don't notice it because it's easy for you to adapt like anywhere. And uh, I think you only see it when you work with people who don't have that kind of background. Yeah. Then you realize how lucky you are. Yeah. So let's go back to the start of Wheelie and yeah. its first kind of incarnation. What were your first steps in raising funds in in doing research to see if it would work? Well, you see, at the beginning, we didn't really need funds. Because, I mean, this was like me plus one guy or two guys. Um, we got some, we got actually, right at the start, we got a grant from, um, there were like two entrepreneurs. Um, you know, Pavel Durov was the founder of Telegram. Oh, right, yeah. And Yuri Miller was an investor in uh, Facebook, DST yeah, yeah. and so on. So they had a grant for startups and we got like, something like $25,000 from them, which was helpful. Uh, but we didn't really need much money because, I mean, we were just writing an app and um, that's it really. The yeah. And what about the research? How did you conduct research about finding the market size, about your kind of customer demographics? We didn't. I mean, okay. we didn't even do that until like, I guess, two years ago, maybe something like this. Wow. So a lot of gut feeling, a lot of yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, okay, so this was like the first incarnation and we ended up realizing at some point that this would not work out for a variety of reasons. First of all, the product needs to be good. And when you rely on third-party systems, I mean, that are legacy, you're going to run into all kinds of issues, like, for example, the driving position being off by a few minutes which is not really great and there of course there were some challenges around the business side right so when you work when you're an aggregator 
and work with uh, companies that work directly with drivers, I mean, they have their own customers. So why would they take work from you when they have already? They only want work from you when they don't have any, right? So you're in a, in a bit of a difficult position. And so that's when we started to developing our own dispatching system, our own driver app. And um, yeah, so we ended up um, renting like five black cars uh, in Moscow where our engineering team was and um, launching this, say, luxury right hailing product back then. Yeah, and you owned the cars back then, they weren't... No, we didn't own the cars, we simply like rented a few of them. Okay, fine. So in- including the driver, right? Yeah. It's just to see how the technology would work. Okay, and and how did it work out at first? Um, it was interesting, and um, I mean, uh, it was really interesting to move, I say, from where you're a pure software company where you need to start and learn how to do operations so because you it's a bit different yeah yeah because before then i mean what we did is we simply passed on bookings that was it yeah and suddenly you had a whole kind of quality control issue i guess uh not when you have five cars but when you begin to scale you need to learn how to do it yeah right so that's what we started to do and what were the kind of logistical speed bumps? Do you have to get a license to run something like that? I know in London, certainly, you need to have a license. No, you don't. But Do you here not? in London, you need, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. So that was that was the first fleet that was in Moscow. And were you operating under the wheelie name then? Yeah, both in London and in Moscow. But in London back then, I mean, okay, so we tried this uh, booking.com mm. model, booking.com for, for taxis and minicabs. And then we say, okay, so it works really well having our kind of own fleet in Moscow, let's do the same in London. And so yeah. we we tried to do the same in London, but here we said, okay, so let's see if we can't build a new category. So instead of going all the way into luxury, let's do something above minicaps, but below premium. And so okay. we, we got like 50 black Priuses that we rented and re-rented the drivers and saw how it would work out. Okay, But it's a difficult thing to do um, when you're trying to build um, a category like this. Okay. And what, what what year was that? It was 2013. 2013. Yeah. So that's just as Uber is, is kind of breaking into London. Yeah, that was at the same time. And they're offering essentially a very similar model to that. It was... High-end. S- uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they were back then, they were high-end. We were something like in the... Medium category, so okay. above Uber X and below, below, yeah. Yeah, and when Uber started getting big and taking off, did you were you threatened by that, or did you kind of enjoy being the young challenger? No, I mean back then, I mean we shifted our focus back to Moscow because the business was doing really well, and we forgot for London for like three, four years, mm. and we didn't do anything here, and we shifted our focus to Moscow and uh, got some very promising results. So that was when we grew as a business to 100 employees, something like $50 million in annual gross bookings. And once we've done that, we were thinking, okay, so we've managed to become successful in a single city in this niche. What can we do next, right? And we understand that the business model we do, it works in 
large cities, mm. right? You need a um, high enough number of rich and affluent people so that you can have a liquid supply uh, 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 so that you're, you as a marketplace are liquid and there's always supply when there is demand and the other way around. Mm. Yeah. So now you're back in London as of the start of 2018. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And how have you found it here? Um, we're seeing very good traction here. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you speak to the customers? Do you know the kind of profile of the average customer? What's their age? Where they come from? I see. The, the great thing when you try to build something in the luxury segment and when you only have to target large cities like Moscow and London and we want to go after Paris next year, is that those cities are very, very similar. And um, affluent people living in those cities like the same things. They mm. eat the same food, they buy the same clothes and so on. Yeah. So it's not that different. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, I, I mean, in terms of demographic, whenever we looked at demographics, we saw that the only predictor that works um, is income. If you have more money, you're more likely to buy luxury goods or buy luxury services. Yeah. And how much money did you invest in trying to incentivize or advertise to these new customers who might use Uber Lux or Uber Exec at the moment? So we don't incentivize customers. Uh, the reason for that is very simple. As if you look at the mass market, at the right healing market in general, you see that um, the service of going from point A to point B is a commodity. Uh, and the only reason why people would switch is the price. However, we see that in our segment, we're not selling a commodity uh, because price is not the main factor by which people choose one service over the other. But consistency of service and high quality of driver is the main factor for choosing a service like that. Okay. So how do you screen then your drivers? How do you make sure that they're all delivering that consistency of service? What's the process for finding a new driver? So uh, I'll, let, I'll explain it to you. So um, you can, of course, I mean, what what is essentially, what, what the difference between a chauffeur company in London and say Uber exec, right? So if you use Uber, I mean, you get the convenience of um, using an app, not having to carry cash or whatever. You can work as a driver, but essentially it's a driver with a certain type of car, right? On the other hand, you can go to chauffeur companies and say, I need a car tomorrow for three hours and you're going to get a great driver, a great car. And we're essentially at the intersection of a tech company in terms of the technology we have. And on the other side, in terms of being having been able to scale um, operations in terms of um, assessing and managing quality, quality of chauffeurs at scale. And that's yeah. what we're good at. So if you look at our process, we're going to see every driver face to face, of course. We're going to give them a city geography test, okay. which is, of course, not as hard as the knowledge. There's no questions around that. But it's important for us to know that drivers, when you get in the car, they're not like, give me your postcode, but you can say, okay, drive me to Nobu and Mayfair, and they should, find okay. it, they should know it. So there's this first part, 
There's the second part around uh, we screen for drivers to know chauffeur etiquette. They, they should know how to open doors. They should not listen to their music and so on. Okay. Is what there a special way to open a door if you're a chauffeur? Well, you should open doors. Um, uh, well, the point is that you should wait by the car when okay. you're expecting a customer rather than sitting in the vehicle and jumping out when yeah. you see the passengers was the first thing. Um, there's a peculiar... Of course, you have to think when there are multiple passengers who you're going to uh, greet first. Yeah. Okay. And what's the uh, the working background of most of the, the chauffeurs? Are they from traditional chauffeur companies? Are they Uber drivers? They would usually have uh, chauffeur experience for multiple years and mostly chauffeur companies. Yeah. yeah. What's the pass rate then? How many of them get through your screening process? So when we looked at pass rate of um, was around thirty uh, percent. Okay, so most people don't make it through. Of course not. Wow, and it is it's not in your interest to have more drivers. You'd rather have better service. Um, it doesn't mean they're ne- they are never going to pass it. Yeah. Because some of them come back, of okay. course. A bit like you and your driving test, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. have a driving license now out of interest? No, I don't. No, I don't. neither do I. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. need it now we've got all these apps. No, you don't. So if I download the app, how long does it take on average for me to get picked up? Because in a, in a Uber situation, there's kind of tens of thousands of Uber drivers. Yeah. Um, but with Wheelie, there's how many drivers do you have? I guess we have something like around 300 drivers now in okay. London. So it's a smaller percentage and you could be somewhere very suburban and it might take a bit longer, for example. Well, so here I'm, I have to wait one minute for an S class and five minutes for an E class. Wow. Or we are. Okay. Yeah. Is that typical of kind of central London? So we're looking at uh, pickup times of up to 10 minutes. That's our target. Yeah. And what's the, is there an opportunity to book in advance as well? Yeah. So you can book both on demand which like the vast majority of our bookings, you can also book in advance. And okay. what, what we see is that customers often book in advance, for example, if they go to the airport or want to be met at the airport. Yeah. Okay. So that's a service that I suppose Uber doesn't really offer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Difference. yeah. Yeah. You can also like um, in the app, you can turn on and off a, a, a toggle that says, meet me with a name board. Okay. So right. that you don't have to go by yourself to parking yeah. and start looking for the driver. He's okay. simply going to wait for you for arrivals. Yeah, that's quite nice. Yeah. So what are the big threats then? What keeps you up at night? What could come along and eat wheelie, so to speak? Um, we have uh, very challenging plans uh, because our goal is to build a global company. So yeah. We see that there is an opportunity to build a global company in this niche only in the world's largest cities. And um, we're in the middle of uh, building out a team in order to scale the company beyond uh, next, I mean, next year in Paris and then further. Yeah. How big will your team then be globally, full-time staff members? We're going to double or triple. So that would take you to? 200, 300 people, yeah. Wow. That's quite a lot. And you'll be at the top of all those people. Yeah. And at 29, I imagine that a lot of these people will be older and perhaps have longer work experience than you. Do you ever worry about your authority or leading these people? No, there's no questions around that. Okay, fine. <laughs> Are you a natural leader? Are you very certain in your decisions, do you think? 
Excuse me? Are you a natural leader? Are you... Some people perhaps don't like taking the lead. They like sitting back and having orders from someone else. But do you enjoy the process of managing people? Well, you need someone who can make decisions, yeah. Yeah. Are you very certain in your decisions? Are you a man yeah. who doesn't have many doubts? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Do you ever make big mistakes, do you think? Or do you ever get your decisions wrong? Of course, you, you always make mistakes. And I think the best way to learn is by doing mistakes. And yeah. they did a lot of them. Of right? course. The most notable, notable one was instead of focusing on my segment was what I told you before when I was trying to build a new category mm. and having this um, idea of uh, let's do something that's more mass market. Okay, that was a mistake. How long mm. did it take you to realize that mistake? And how did a year you and a half, I guess. Wow, so, so it, it, was, it, it was quite a bit of a distraction, of course. Yeah, and was there one moment when you suddenly realized we, we shouldn't be doing this, let's change quickly? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so... I was like, had mm, quite a limited budget for okay. this project. And I was thinking, okay, so I just need to hire like a super strong marketing person. Yeah. And um, he's going to help me scale my business X10 or something okay. like this. And I even found, 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 found a strong marketer like two days before he's supposed to start. And I mean, his workplace is ready. Notebook yeah. is um, already delivered. And he says, okay, I can't do the job because it's not possible. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so that's a pretty good indication. Yeah, so that's a, that was um, <laughs> that was some kind of wake-up call. Yeah. And um, proceed, uh, proceeding with that, me and my team sat down and um, slowly over the course of a few weeks closed down this experiment. And since then, I think since 2016, We've just focused on our luxury segment, yeah. that's it. And ha when you have a big setback like that, how how do you kind of pick yourself up and and keep going? I mean, I mean it's important to, to realize that um, every mistake is an opportunity to learn and that that's how you should approach issues and problems rather yeah. than being disappointed. Okay, that's good. I'm interested when you say you found a brilliant marketer, what do you look for when you're choosing new employees? What are the, the, the traits that impress you most in an interview? Um, one of the things is a growth mindset. Okay. So that's exactly when people learn from mistakes. Yeah. By a growth mindset, you mean people who are looking for big opportunities or? No, I mean, on one hand, people who can learn from their mistakes. Okay. On the other hand, people who can teach themselves how to do a certain things okay. rather than having a fixed mindset where you think that you, you're you only good at what you know and you don't see room to go outside of your comfort zone, wow. if that makes sense. And how do you discover that in an interview? If you've got half an hour with someone, how do you find whether they've got that kind of... Well, typically you, you can, I mean, you have like behavioral questions for that. So you're going to ask, okay, tell me about a time when you made a mistake and learned from it. Yeah. And you're going to see that people would tell you, I don't make mistakes, okay. <laughs> probably don't have this kind of mindset or yeah. that do not have the ability to reflect on mistakes and try to make something out of it. Yeah. So you'd much rather people who've made mistakes and can own up to them than people course. who think they're perfect. Of course. Yeah. Where do you see Wheelie then in the next five years? What We're going to Paris. Where, where else are you going to expand to? So we're going to we want to launch Paris, of course. Yeah. That's um and after that we're looking uh 
how we can expand so to the rest of the other cities that we have in mind. There are about 30 of them and we'll have to plan it more carefully okay. after we launch Paris. So that's something yeah. we'll be doing next year. And do you, at this point, are you looking for outside funds? When was the last time you raised money? Um, we don't need funds so far because, I mean, our operations are covering like a fixed costs, including engineering, which is quite impressive in this space, I think. Yeah. And we're, um, as you maybe know it, we're in the middle of a fundraise. Yeah. And what, how much are you trying to raise then? Can you tell us? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's public. It's uh, up to $20 million. Okay. You, and do you have a time you've got to raise that by, or is it just an ongoing process? Uh, no, so we're in the process of, uh, I guess, closing soon. Okay, so you're pretty confident that that 20 million is going to be reached? Yeah. In what time scale do you think? Um, I can't discuss that. Okay, <laughs> quite right. <laughs> do you think there's a big difference between Russian mode of kind of looking at enterprise and, and the British mindset? I don't think I have a Russian mindset. No. No. But you must well, know. For me, when I um, started to build an engineering team in Moscow, it was much more difficult to adapt rather than here. Yeah. That's one thing. I mean, when I uh, flew to Russia eight years ago, I couldn't even write Russian. Okay. So, yeah. Fine. And what are the biggest mistakes you see people making in um, when they're trying to set up new kind of service-based startups? What are the common reasons most of these things fail? Is it trying to grow too quickly? Is it sticking to their ideas when they're failing? I think that people try to do too many things at once. And this is also one of the mistakes I've made. So, I mean, often, say, when you launch, say, a new product or service, yeah. app, whatever, you don't necessarily need to expand say to a second city or to a second country you should build that out first and it's possible to reach critical mass in a single market yeah before thinking about expanding okay and that's a mistake that most people a lot of people make they try and run i i hear it sometimes and also did it myself right yeah of course do you think there are any daily habits that great entrepreneurs observe you hear a lot of people put an emphasis on exercise and health and well-being. Is that important? I exercise daily. I, I mean, I box. I, sw I used to. I stop swimming. I do yoga. Wow! Every I day. To, I go to to the gym. Yeah, but today uh, I I didn't have time. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> and how many hours is that in your daily routine? That's uh, one and a half hours. Really? And you managed to fit that in with everything else? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And is that very important to your kind of your mindset or your yeah it's important do you have your best ideas when you're boxing or swimming no no <laughs> when do you have your best ideas then some people say when they're drunk or um no i actually don't drink <laughs> okay right it's not that one either <laughs> fair enough is there a process you go through when you're trying to work your way through a problem a salute to find a solution um so you 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 asked about some habits mm. and I think one of the most important thing if you are a founder is to be good at task management or at um, time management and uh, for example I use the thing called getting things done if okay. you're familiar with no, it I've not no I haven't heard of it I sound it's like a, I need it though it's a task management technique where essentially um, the key idea is that 
uh, your mind is not for holding ideas, but for having them. And so when you have a new idea or whatever, you write it down. You have like a separate list. It can be either on paper or in your phone. Did you call an inbox where you just write ideas down? And then you sit down and one by one, you either do it if uh, it takes less than two minutes or you assign it to say a project in a context okay context could be something like in front of the computer or when you're at the, at the office or whatever and then you simply do them okay and that, the context is a kind of setting yeah exactly yeah. yeah is there a software that helps you manage that or is that all just a kind of a personal process um yeah so i mean there's a software that uh, helps you do it when you are the only one using it Thing is called OmniFocus or something like this. Okay. However, it's difficult to collaborate, right? And um, we've set something up in Asana, which is like a yeah. team man, uh, task collaboration tool, where you could could use GTD in conjunction with Asana. So getting things done—that's a kind of philosophy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a uh, it's a technique, right? Technique. It's not a special tool or something. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Getting things done. Yeah. I definitely need to do more yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Is there one single piece of advice you've been given over your career that you think has really helped you? I think there are tons, and I really need to think what the mo most important one is. Are there any that stick out now? Any that have been recent, for example? or On top of my mind, no. no. Okay. Uh, what, what mentors have you had? Have you had anyone who's, who's guided you, who's, who's done this kind of thing before? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I have um, uh, on my board... I have an independent director, uh, not non-executive, yeah. who has gone through this already. And yeah. it's like super helpful. Yeah. And what what's helpful about it? Is it their attitude, their outlook, or just their knowledge? It's both knowledge and attitude and uh, getting advice when you need it. Yeah. What kind of advice do you mostly go to these mentors for? Uh, it would be, say... For example, um, what kind of organizational structure do I need? Yeah. And they can come through yeah. because they, they, yeah. they've been there yeah. before. Yeah. So I want to ask you now a few questions before we end sure. um, that are more personal slightly. Yeah. So we can get to know Anton the man, not just the businessman. Um, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this? I'd probably be a scientist, I guess. What kind of scientist? Physics. Physics? Yeah. Wow. Who in the world of business do you most admire? Jobs. Yeah? In what way? Um, in the way that instead of building something, say, for money, which I believe is something many entrepreneurs do, and when to tell you their story, they say, okay, so I'm going to teach you how to build a business so that I could care for myself and my family. Mm. And uh, I really respect entrepreneurs who are doing things not for the sake of money but for the sake of building a great product or service that improve people's lives yeah what's the main driver for you with wheelie then is it financial or is it to build something great it's the second one of course yeah and the finance doesn't hurt i suppose if you make money along the way it doesn't hurt yeah. okay that's good what are you most proud of in your career so far i guess it would be that over the last eight years We've managed to build a 
company of that size and a product that is loved by customers. Yeah. How do you know it's loved? Do you often meet your customers? Do you see them at parties? And uh, I mean, that's when you like you speak to people at parties and or for example and and um, they ask you what do you do and you say oh yeah I do this I say oh I love the service wow is that is that a very good feeling yeah yeah I imagine that's the best kind of market feedback you can get people who use it all the time yeah, yeah. exactly brilliant uh, and then on the other side of things you've sort of answered this already but what's your biggest regret or or failure so far I don't have any regrets because I see failures as opportunities to learn. Yeah. But probably if I was more experienced, I would not have wasted like two years of my time on trying to build um, a cheaper service on one hand, or I would not have spent a year or so trying to build Booking.com for ground travel. Okay. But then it brought you to where you are today. Yeah, it brought me. Yeah, exactly. What's your biggest fear in business or in otherwise? I'm not sure I know. You don't have any fears? Probably not. Wow. That's a good mindset <laughs> to have. Um, what's your most treasured physical possession? That's a good question. I don't even know. Okay. You haven't got a watch or a car that you particularly love? No, no. Okay, you don't I drive. don't have a car. That's true. <laughs> yeah, no, good point. <laughs> and no watch on your wrist either. No. Uh, is there a book that you most often recommend to people or is there a book that's influenced you more than any others? Yeah, probably one of the most influential books I have ever read is uh, Atlas Shrugged. That's Ayn Rand. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a super capitalist. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a strongly capitalist believer? I am a believer that the way to improve people's lives is by building something useful rather than signing laws. Okay. So business, not the state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you have a personal motto? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, what's your idea of happiness? When's Anton happiest? Uh, That's a good question. I, I think... Um, I am generally happy. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's not been any particularly happy moments. No, I'm, I mean, of course, there are, and it's okay to be uh, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, and it's perfectly fine. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Anson, thank you very much yeah, for coming thanks. in. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at the Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.